He's the loudest. He's the louder one. Hey everybody, it's Richard Harris uh, with the Surf and Sales Podcast, along with Scott Lease, uh, the gentleman who birthed this amazing, amazing uh, concept uh, from the event uh, down to the podcast. Although I, I think I helped with that one a little bit more, uh, but we're super excited. Enough about us. Super excited to have the one and only Daniel Disney here. Uh, Daniel, you know from LinkedIn. Uh, if you don't know him, you should. Please follow him. Uh, he also has the daily sales, which we're really fascinated to get into the origin story of that, uh, understanding that. But we're also going to talk to Daniel about sales trends, what's happening, what he sees changing and shifting, uh, what's Daniel's origin story besides the daily sales. And uh, with, with all that, Daniel, welcome to the show, man. We're glad to have you. Oh, Richard Scott, honestly, it's an honor to be on this uh, on this podcast. I've been following you guys for, for years. You've been a huge influence on, on my journey as well. So to be here chatting with you guys is uh, it's a real privilege. I'm excited. Oh, appreciate that, man. What, what part of the UK are you in right now? Where, where are you based? Yeah, so I'm right down in the south. I'm sort of about an hour from London, um, just sort of a little village on the, the outskirts. But pretty much put a line down the middle right to the bottom. That's where I am. Gotcha. gotcha. All right. I know, I know Scott's. Scott, Scott's not going to ask you, but but who's your favorite football team? Because I know that you know Scott's a huge. Oh, I would be. I, I'd ask him. But I was hoping to get it out of him first. You know, <laughs> well, football teams are one of those things that you tend to avoid uh, talking about on social media because whoever you like, you know, someone else isn't going to like. I'm I'm not a massive football fan. My sport of preference is actually the UFC, so I'm still buzzing from a, a very good fight at the oh. weekend. <laughs> Right that, that is the greatest sales gig ever. Let's create a fight, pay pe- make people pay 50 bucks, and in 42 seconds, it'll be over. Yeah. Right? And, like, and, and you take home $100 million or more. Exactly. Yeah. Scott, we should, just, that's, we should just change the podcast into Maybe. a UFC. How many people would pay forty nine ninety nine to watch you and I fight? Oh, I'm sure they would. <laughs> exactly. So. And we, I, I'd be happy to throw the fight and let you win in 49 seconds. Likewise. So. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, let's 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 get back to the main point of this conversation. So, so Daniel, you know, a lot of people know you from the daily sales. Uh, let people know what that is. But before we jump into how you got to that, how did Daniel get into sales? How did you get into all those, you know, this revenue machine? You know, yeah. So I um I'm one of those kind of kids where business and entrepreneurship was in me from such a young age. I remember I think I started my first. Sort of mini business when I was eight years old um, in my garage, just selling my sort of arcade games for kids to come and play. And you know, a few years later, selling sweets and chocolates from my backpack at school to make some extra money. A- any opportunity I could uh, find to, to generate some revenue, I was I was on it. And right. where, where do you think that came from? It's a really good question. I mean, neither of my parents are, are sales or business people. Uh, my dad was an engineer, and mum worked in a school. I think. One of the biggest influences was my my uncle, um, who kind of came into my life relatively early on, probably around 10, 11 years old. And he worked in sales and he loved sales. And, you know, I remember listening to all his stories. And he was one of those people that were genuinely passionate about helping people. And, you know, he was a people person. So I think his influence certainly pushed me to when I you know, was 16 and able to work. Sales was the sort of the role I was most interested in. What was, your, what was that first sales job at 16? What was it? Yeah, it was uh, selling kitchens and bathrooms for a DIY company here in the, uh, in the UK. So 16 like years remod- old, like still full, in college. Like full remodels. Like full yeah, remodels yeah. in the kitchen? 
full design, full remodel, um, which is uh, bizarre being 16 years old and, you know, yeah. designing people a lot older than me <laughs> designing their kitchens. Yeah, yeah. That, that, was, that was my next thing. So that, that invokes building a lot of trust with people, right? And here you are as this 16-year-old kid. What did you learn early on that got people to trust you, if you can remember back to something like that? Yeah, it was, I mean, it was really throwing the deep end for, for the importance of building trust and relationships. I think what I learned very early on is the importance of just listening and sort of learning what they wanted and then, you know, using that to create the solution for them, which it was a very powerful lesson to learn at, you know, quite a young age and sort of early in, in my career. But that's something that's obviously, you know, been such a big part of sales in, in every role I've had. Yeah. So what was your first, you know, sort of uh, adult sales job, right? And, and you know, I, I'll use that word adult loosely in case you're still waiting for it, right? Like Scott and I. So. <laughs> yeah, well, yes, yeah, yeah, true. Still waiting for it. But um, no, I think I got into the kind of B2B sector about eight years ago, um, selling uh, IT for the computer and software training. Um, and that was my first sort of B2B role. So, you know, B2C for a large chunk of my career. And then going into B2B felt like the real sales role where it was, you know, office based and cold calling, all that kind of stuff felt like a, yeah, I guess a more what, real sales. What do you, what do you think, you know, if you think back to that first job, as you said, you went from B to C to B to B, what was the first thing that you noticed was different? The pace. Um, B to C, there's a lot of waiting and a lot of, you know, hunting, starting conversations. Whereas in B to B, you know, you've got to be on the phones constantly, you've got to be out at meetings. It was more fast paced. Obviously, the customer was different, but the conversations you're having with your customers and prospects are a lot different B to C and B to B. And I think I know during that period of time, I learned a lot of the importance of adapting to different people. You know, B to C customers. Yeah, generally relatively similar, but when you go to B2B, you're talking to decision makers, totally different companies, different backgrounds, and you know, the importance of adapting to each of them. I don't know, I found that a lot more intense. What at what point did, did you decide that you were gonna go into business for, for yourself? How 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 fast did you realize that you know you weren't meant to work for other people? Well, I'd always wanted to start a business, as I said, from a young age, honestly, not just starting those little businesses, but I'd always wanted to have something of my own. The challenge was I didn't have a, a, a skill or I didn't see that I had any skills at the time. That is, you know, if I was a plumber, I could set up a plumbing business. If I was an electrician, I could set up an electrician, but I, I didn't have those sort of skills. So I, I've been and tried so many different things. And I guess where this opportunity came in was where I started to see so much traction on LinkedIn and started to build something. Um, so it was literally, I think, a year before I went uh, sort of self-employed, which is now two years ago. So I say three years ago, I saw the momentum building. And I thought, Do you know what? I have a chance. And for six months, as soon as the sort of switch went on and I thought, yeah, I can do this for six months, never worked harder in my life to make it work because, you know, I've got a, a partner, two kids. It's not easy for me to kind of throw a, a well-paid you know, sales leader job down and go solo. I had to make sure there were foundations, but yeah, that, that was when I really sort of smelt the opportunity. Would, would, would you, so would you give credit to LinkedIn and the, and the, the network and the content that you've produced for kind of giving you enough confidence to take that risk? 
Uh, yeah, massively. Uh, yeah, not yeah. just for, for that risk in itself, but equally for the a big part of my sales career for the last sort of you know seven eight years that I was using LinkedIn. You know, it's been a massive help for me learning, for just reading, watching, listening to the sales experts and, and influencers, et cetera, from a learning perspective, from a networking, allowing me to, to meet and connect with people around the world. Yeah, LinkedIn's obviously had a huge impact in career and, and where I am now. What do you remember? So when you decided to start doing something on LinkedIn, before you started, before you decided to create the business, what were you first testing? Like, what was your first do you remember like what your first post was what inspired it like where did it come from yeah so i'd already started using linkedin for what it's used for to find prospects and customers and, and all that kind of stuff start conversations the whole social selling piece but when i sort of started to create content i remember i'd been reading blogs on linkedin amazing sales blogs at the time and something just sort of burned inside i thought oh, i want to write a blog and i can remember uh, the first blog was something like favorite five sales quotes something like that and i scrolled back and looked at it not so long ago and it was terrible i mean everything about it, it was picture was horrible it was short and poorly written but you know people liked it there might have been 10 likes it was nothing major and i enjoyed the process of writing it and sharing it and it was yeah i just started writing every week and each new blog grew the you know the, the sort of reach and, and the engagement and yeah one thing led to another did before you went out on, on your own did you were you building up your your own business kind of on the side and if and if you were and if you were like here's your regular job right and then building up this side hustle building it up and then and then you drop the regular gig or did you just like go cold turkey drop the main gig go all in on on yourself i'm just curious about about how, how you kind of built up the, the business on your own? Yeah, so I've been building it for two years whilst in, in a full-time job. So for the first year and a bit, it wasn't, I didn't see it as a business. It was just a hobby. I was just right. creating content, sharing it. And for me, it was more of that good feeling of being able to share and, and something on the side. But then the moment I saw the opportunity for it to be a business, that was where I really ramped it up. And, and that was intense. I had a full-time, very intense full-time yeah. job and that was evenings and weekends um but yeah i had to i think it was a good six months until i had enough business secured for at least a year to know that if i was to you know quit my job and and do this there was a level of security i could provide for my family that you know worse things you know things go bad then i have time to to find yeah. another role um, so, but yeah so so what what kind of practical advice would you give the listeners who you know are maybe working on working full-time and then they also have, you know, a side hustle and they're trying to, trying to sort that out. And I, I, what about just like balancing your, your time? Like how, how did you, how did you split time? When did you do, you said evenings and weekends, that was side hustle stuff, but like, can you give the audience maybe like two or three kind of pro tips? Cause I, I think there's a lot of people now who realize, well, some by necessity are having to make, you know, having to have multiple jobs. Right. But I think a lot of people realize now, like I got to have my hands in a couple different cookie jars and try to get as many different revenue streams as possible here. Um, and they're trying to combine their passions and make money off of them and things like that. So what's like your top two or three tips to, for, for people who are trying to go about doing their job, excelling in their job, but also balancing, building up, you know, a side hustle as well. 
my, my first tip, and I'm, I'm really passionate about this one, is you need to remember whichever is whichever job is paying the bills, that is your priority. Yeah, you better so, be good at that one first. You right? really do, and you, but you have to keep on top of it. And, and that was key to kind of give you enough energy and freedom to kind of pursue this. You need to make sure you are fully on top of that paid gig because if that's stressing you out, if you're not performing because you're distracted, it's only going to make things worse. You need to kind of own that role to make sure everyone's happy that that was a big thing for me was making sure my boss was happy my team was happy everything was flowing so then i had the time you know and the energy come evenings and weekends to, to sort of push it so that would be tip number one just make sure you're on top of your role make sure you keep that as a priority because that's paying the bills that's the most important thing but then i guess tip number two is use the, the motivation and excitement that you have for starting something of your own and that the business to be the fuel because it's not easy after you've worked a 12 14 hour day to come home and then sit and start doing stuff for your business and whatever it may be creating content sharing stuff meetings phone calls you need to have that burning motivation so keep that goal in sight of why you want to do it what it is you kind of envision it to be because that will kind of be the fuel to the fire that will kind of keep you going um and, and the last tip I'll, I'll throw in and this is just from again someone who has the responsibility pieces try and build some security. I've seen a lot of people take that leap um, and, and struggle because they kind of just go straight in the deep end. And we live in a time now where you can do, as you say, the whole side hustle thing, there's a lot you can do whilst you've got the security of a job to kind of offset some of those risks. And, you know, again, personal preference, I guess, but it certainly made that starting, you know, period of months, first year, a lot easier. Um, where I'm then not having to chase and take every opportunity because I'm so desperate to, you know, earn an income. I've already kind of secured a base. It gave me more freedom and confidence. That's good advice. I hope, hope everybody out there is paying attention to that. So this, this is a question for both of you, Richard, you, you as well. <clears throat> is, you know, I've only just begun, right? I, I, I just went full-time um, in October. You guys have been through this cycle a few times and we're all coming upon that time of the year where it's sales kickoff season, SKO season. I, I know, Daniel, I think I saw you were just in the Philippines last week, something like that. It's kind of exciting. Um, give, what are some of the mistakes that companies make when they decide to have a SKO, right? And then for the, also for the both of you, what, what, are, what are the ways that you, how do you design your SKO to have a longer lasting impact than just like, you know, a 48-hour sunburn. Uh, let Richard, do you want to go first on this? I mean, I can. Um, so I think the, the first mistake... Well, first, give Daniel time to think. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so he can criticize all my comments. He can tell uh, you why you're wrong. Yeah. Uh, the first thing is that I think people have to remember that the brain will only absorb as much as the butt will tolerate. And if you're going to bring people together, even for a day or two days or three days or sometimes longer, you know, it's your expectations of brain capacity are probably not accurate. Um, I also think that in most cases, sales kickoffs are some of the worst places to do training if you've got multiple days going on because you've got too much other stuff that people are trying to remember. If you're going to have multiple days, um, for me, it's everything is first and sales training is last so that you can take any new messaging and any new marketing and any new plans and morph that into whatever the training is going to be about, right? That's how I see it. So if, if, you know, if you were hiring Daniel to come in and talk about LinkedIn, well, 
it makes it be silly for Daniel to come in on day one, in my opinion, if you're about to change all the messaging that the reps need to talk about anyway. You know, expecting them to figure it out is is too much. So, um, so, don't, so don't put them through eight hours in the classroom for the SKO. Not, I'm not saying that. I'm what I'm saying is be strategic about it if you're going to force it, right? There, believe me, there are plenty of big companies. Look, we got 500 people all over the world. I can't do an SK, a sales kickoff, and then do training two weeks later. Like they just can't afford that. I get it. But do it at the right time. Make sure that's the last day, right? The last thing remembered is the first, the last thing taught is the first thing remembered kind of a thought. Um, and I'll, I'll say one more thing and then, and then I'll turn it back over to Daniel, which is that, um, if you haven't defined who's going to do the coaching the day after training, the week after training, and two weeks after training, and the month after training, then it's it's not going to work, right? I just had a call today where they're like, Scott, it was actually someone you'd send to me, and you know they're all on board with it, but they're like, well, what's the coaching like afterwards? And I said, well, by who, me or you? And they're like, well, by you. And I explained it, and I said, well, what are you going to do day in and day out? They're like, oh, we hadn't thought about that, right? So... I do have one, sorry, one last thing, sorry. I did have a company come in and, and I don't think that they're really sales kickoffs anymore. I think they're just company kickoffs. They're yearly kickoffs. Everybody should be going, SDR should be going, marketing should be going, ops should be going, engineering should be going. Everybody should be going to understand where the direction of the company is. And sales training should be something separate, totally different, different time, different event. That's my ideal. I understand that doesn't always work, but that's also sort of why I like it to be the last day uh, because there's no such thing as a sales kickoff anymore. It's just a company kickoff. It's a yearly kickoff. And I think you would gain more by embracing the entire organization than just the sales team. So I'll stop there, Daniel. Oh, you, Daniel, what can you add to that? Or, or what, what are some of the mistakes that you see companies make as they're go about, going about trying to plan their SKO? Help them, maybe we can help some people prevent some of these mistakes. Yeah, I think the biggest mistake I've seen over the years is the kind of the, the, the kickoff becomes almost like a, a tick box exercise where they've got, right, we need to cover this, we need to, you know, deliver this, blah, blah, blah. And they're so focused on what they need to, to check that they don't actually think about the outcome. As, as Richard was rightly saying, you know, throwing training at the beginning or too much training, you know, all these things. People might do it because it's tick the box and they think, right, we've done the training for the year, great, let's let them go off. And if they don't hit target, it's their fault, we've done our bit. You know, it's, it's looking at actually what's going to deliver a real outcome. Uh, Richard, your second point was exactly what I was going to say is the whole what's going to happen after the event. So, yeah, it's great. Have a have a good motivational keynote or do a workshop or, or training. But then yeah, what's going to happen when they get back to the office that first week, month, six months? What are you going to put in place to make sure they're going to, you know, take all this new messaging, all these new skills actually start implementing yeah i mean the um the one i just did in the in the philippines you know we had a, a nice keynote session that I, I ran then i did a one hour workshop with sort of several breakout groups so sort of got them to understand some key bits but then we have some um sort of coaching calls and webinars in place across the, the sort of first six months to support them actually implementing using overcoming the challenges it's the only way you can really make sure that you know learning is embedded and, and turned into routine as opposed to you know brain dump on one day and off you go it's your yeah. your responsibility now hey daniel when you just i'm just curious because i'm a little bit of an entrepreneur about this you know i always included you know a couple of you know it was a one hour session for managers after i trained to help coach them i then have sessions with the team like you're suggesting um 
when when you work with people, do you do separate coachings afterwards for, hey, here, here managers, I taught everybody this, here's how you need to teach, you know, you're doing more of train the trainer, as well as focusing on the team? Like, how do you sort of implement that for your organization? And, and what advice do you have for people who are, that they should be asking whoever's come to the SKO about this kind of stuff? Yeah, exactly. Spot on. The, the, the splitting of the, the leadership and, and the actual team is, is, is crucial because, yeah, you can coach the team and, and they'll do their bit. But unless I'm not there every day. So right. unless you've got their managers and, and leaders, you know, fully bought into this, and they're different things. You know, me teaching a sales team how to use LinkedIn is one thing, but their managers, that's a whole different thing of how do you lead that? How do you right. know, you know, what to support them with, what challenges they're going to have? what BS they might give you as excuses. You know, if you don't know, it's just going to, you know, wash over you. So yeah, two totally separate support kind of. Just, out of, just out of curiosity, Daniel, when you talk to people, cause I, I have this conversation a lot. Um, how often do they say, Hey, what are you going to do for my managers as part of this training versus, Hey, what are you doing for my sales team? Do they even think to bring up the management? I, I hear that. I hear that a lot on my end. I hear it. Never. It's I was going to say, maybe five percent of the time, I might get a couple. I wonder, I wonder if I wonder if if I hear it because I've been leading sales teams for as long as I have, and so maybe they think that like maybe that's part of it. My it expertise, could, or something like that. I think it's also it depends on what size companies, Scott. You know, that's possibly true. You know, because you're work, you're also working with a lot of newer managers, unless not always, but sometimes where yeah. they're like, "Help me build this thing," so yeah. they're it might be part of their expectation. So um, that, that's fascinating. Yeah, I, that's the one thing that I would tell people, please ask your trainers, please ask your sales kickoff, please ask your keynotes, whatever you want to call them. Please ask them, how are you going to ensure follow up with my team? And how are you going to help me make my management accountable too? Because if you're not asking that question, you're not asking enough of the right questions. No, and then it becomes a waste of money. You're going to throw this money on this one day and it's going to have minimal, if not zero, impact on the rest of the year. Uh, You've got to put those, those, yeah. those things in place. Are there, are, there, are there new ways that you're, you're training folks now, Daniel? Is, is it, do you, are, you, are you finding that the ways that you deliver trainings um, is changing? Or has it been able to be fairly consistent over the last couple of years? No, there's been different changes. I guess one of the big changes is the difference between physical delivery and virtual delivery. Um, those are totally different ways. So to, let, let, uh, let, let's sit with that one for a, for a minute because that probably resonates for a lot of people. What are a couple things that you can do to ensure that a virtual delivery is as effective as an in-person delivery? What, what, can, what can you do if you're delivering a virtual training to make sure um, you know, that, you're, that you're hammering home the, the the points and the, and the, and the topics that, that you're covering. A couple, couple of pro tips on that. Two things that stand out to me are, are the energy you bring. <laughs> it's, if you're going to be watching a video and someone's standing in one specific spot speaking in the same tone, you're going to lose your audience. You need to have the same energy you would bring you know, physically. And the other thing is, is keep their interaction as frequent as possible, whether it's little questions every so often or you know, asking them to do group things. Whatever little things. I mean, a lot of these platforms are built with so many different um, activities and interactive things that you can do. Just keep them going. It's not easy sitting in front of a computer screen. It's you know easier to sit in front of someone you know face to face, but behind a screen, that's that's not easy. So what do you, you do? Yeah, I totally. I want to. I want to push on that a little bit. When you because I've done some virtual trainings, right? Where you know the, the the team is just too dispersed, or it's for me. I'm in based in California, and they're in the U and in, in the EU. 
you know, I found that trying to do anything virtually more than about 90 minutes is, isn't going to work so well. Like you, nobody's going to want to sit and watch a training for three hours or four hours on the computer. Um, which is different than if you did like a day of training and you can sort of build on something and build on something throughout the day and create this crescendo. What have you seen in your experience being the optimal amount of time where you think people will pay attention, um, not put themselves on mute, turn off their camera and start doing email. Like when do you, you know, what have you done or, or see that's the most successful an hour, two hours? The two hours is the longest, um, I've done and I kind of knew by the time I got to the end of those two hours I was pushing my luck um, right. so I tend to try and stick to an hour hour and a half two hours can be done it's hard work for both parts but anything longer than that I mean I know I would struggle I would yes yeah, really struggle to, to you know what's the biggest thinking. what's the biggest team you've done virtually because I think that's awesome well, gosh I've got a hundred people versus I got 15 people or 10 people or you know something that feels more intimate yeah, so 35 is the largest group I've done virtually, which is actually a very similar size to what I would do physically. Again, the, the bigger you get, the harder, and the, the less they're going to get on a, a sort of one-to-one -one basis. I try to stay away from too large a group, unless it's like a, a keynote, something like that. That's fine, high intensity, yeah. big groups are fine. But if you're trying to do a real workshop, um, proper learning thing, 35, I think anything more than that, it's going to be really hard to give everyone some form of individual attention. <laughs> What are, what are, give us, give me a couple of differences that, that one might not expect as you train and work with salespeople all around the world. Like what's the difference in, in salesmanship and, and the craft in the UK versus in the States, for example? Yeah. I mean, to be fair, the U S you guys are like several years ahead of where sales is in, in the UK. So why is that? Is, I mean, give, give a couple of examples. Um, you guys sort of embrace sales, whereas in the UK, sales is still kind of really looked down upon, trust me, a lot more than, than it kind of is in the US. So, you know, and there's also less of an individual appetite for development here in the UK. So individual reps aren't as hungry to, to kind of grow and, and learn, whereas what I've experienced in the US is there is more of an appetite, which is, you know, very good. It helps me. Um, so yeah, what I do a lot more over here is a lot more fighting to get their attention, to get their buy-in, to you know, get them through. Whereas what I found in the US, kind of, they're already there. So what you're trying to do is really maximize what they're going to take away from it. But what what do you say when you say it's different? We're three or four years ahead of you. Like what things are ahead? Like what is what does that really mean? Like it sounds interesting, but I'm curious of what that is. The motivation piece. Maybe like our, our, our sales reps or salespeople, you know, in the States, maybe more ambitious at this point in time and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. Sales is, it feels, and from experience, it feels like sales is a bigger thing in the U S than it is in the UK. You know, sales is a lot more credible as a career, but you guys are also way more ahead with sales technologies. You know, they're a lot more embraced by companies and used by companies where in the UK it's still early days trying to get them to use any form of technology is hard work, even down to things like LinkedIn. Whereas, again, you guys are a couple of years ahead in terms of you know taking those on. I mean, you were just you were just in the Philippines, and and you know you, I know you go to lots of different parts of the world. Is it is there similar gaps as you go to different places? Like, would you say, well, the UK is way ahead of this particular location? Is is it is it real geographical like that? Yeah, I mean, I'm still learning a lot about different countries and cultures and, and how they sell. Um, one of the things I learned uh, over last week in the Philippines, I spent, there was a big 
sort of presence from uh, their China team. And, you know, from a social selling LinkedIn perspective, LinkedIn is kind of in quite early days there. So it was really interesting to kind of see quite a few of them, you know, either shut it down and said, no, we don't have it here and educating them, say it's there and it's growing and now's the yeah. bit, those sort of things. But again, of course, I'm not an expert on that. I'm trying to absorb and learn as much about how it is. I guess the reality is, yes, it is different. Um, and the same way as a salesperson, you adapt your customers. For me, it's just trying to make sure I learn as much as I can about how it is different. What do you think are some of the similarities you see? I mean, sales is sales. So, <laughs> you know, a lot of the similarities go in the way that it works. I guess the difference is often different cultures and how they deal with conversations, with communications, um, obviously the platforms that so, they use. So let me, let me, let me ask you this, cause there's a, there's a lot of sales orgs in, in the States here uh, who are trying to sell into the UK and into the, the EU. What are some things that that should be on this, the the minds of the of the sales folks, you know, here in California and Texas and whatnot? Like, how do how can we do a better job selling to the UK and the EU? I think the teams or the companies I see do it best have some form of UK presence. It doesn't have to be a massive team, even if it's just one person on the ground, but something local that someone local that can do some part of that job. Um, I do see it being quite a struggle for what, what do you, but what is it about that? What is it like technically, you know, and I'm not this person, I would not advocate it. I could say I've got a, a dedicated UK person, create a UK phone number, you know, whatever. Uh, what is it about that in your mind that, that makes it easier for the EU or UK customer to go, okay, now I'll talk to them or I'm a little more open. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong, you could, and, and I guess it would be how convincing you could be. There is a big difference in what your sort of knowledge and understanding of general UK culture and, and what's happening here and, and the way you would speak that would be slightly different, I guess, to someone who's external. So there is there is that. Again, it could be done. It would be a challenge. It could be, but there is a benefit to having someone who understands the, the area, what's going on in the, in the world, what's important people at the moment in the UK. But then we started the conversation off talking about Harry and Megan, although we said we weren't going to bring it up. And now we, here we are. Here we go. <laughs> Can't escape it. But that would be something you could do again, you know, and it could work. But that doesn't, that's just, that, that to me is just surface stuff. Like I can go read, you know, the Daily Mail and go read four newspapers a day and be educated about those things. There's something to be said for, for, you know, local likes to buy from local though, right? So, you know, like it, I remember the first sales job I ever had, uh, I was living in Oakland, California at the time and I got given two territories. One was the Indianapolis, Indiana territory and surrounding areas, which I knew absolutely nothing about. And the other territory I was given was the Sacramento area. Now I grew up about 90 miles north of Sacramento. I knew the whole Sacramento area inside and out. I had gone there for tennis tournaments and soccer tournaments, and traveled there God knows how many times. And it was so easy for me to be like, oh, I know Old Town. I know Land Park. I know these other suburbs around there. And it took me ages to get to a place in, in Indiana where I was like, oh, I know Noblesville and Carmel and Indianapolis and that kind of thing. So, you know, I think that probably is applicable no matter where you are. You know, if, if, I, if I'm in London and I can speak to the different neighborhoods and whatnot, right, and I know, like, something about the, 
the rivalries and things like that or the slang, right? Nobody in Southern California says hella, right, Richard? So if I'm going to sell to Southern California, like I'm not going to use the word hella, right? I think the key you kind of mentioned, though, is, is that going that extra mile to at least learn or have some understanding of the environment that your customers are in. And unfortunately, I would say that there are a lot of sales reps that don't make that effort, which is essentially why there would be a bigger struggle. Absolutely. If you, if you do that, great, you'll have the advantage, but it's yeah. an advantage. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Jeremy, Jeremy over at Lead IQ is, is the epitome of diving into the culture of wherever he's calling into. I know, I know you know him, Daniel, just from LinkedIn and stuff, right? But yeah. he really does try to figure out a cultural way in um, to be and sound local, even though he's not local. He, he doesn't hide behind it. He's not bullshitting people, but he certainly makes the effort, which I think is the respect that yeah. people, the people want. So uh, can I shift this a little bit? I, I tell, you know, daily sales. Right. Where did this thing come up? I mean, first of all, my, I, we're sitting tell everybody in the, I, what it is. What's that? Tell everybody what it is. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. The daily sales is a, it's kind of a platform or a place or, you know, some community for, for salespeople. And, you know, I, I came up with the idea early days of using LinkedIn. I kind of mentioned earlier, started writing my own sales blogs and found a bit of a voice and a passion for creating sales content. And one of the things I started to see a lot of, especially in Facebook, are memes, but I never saw any sales memes. And one day I just thought, you know, I'm going to download a meme app and I'm going to try and create a meme for a sales situation, send it to some of my colleagues, maybe put it on social media. And I put it on LinkedIn and, and it ended up on, on Facebook. And I think this first meme generated over a thousand likes, which I'd never seen any content do that sort of, you know, engagement. This was back in LinkedIn a long time ago. Those were pretty big numbers. I was shocked by it. Then I enjoyed it, made me laugh, you know, and it made people I know laugh. So I just started creating, you know, more memes, more sales blogs. And what I kind of noticed was there was different content going out across LinkedIn. And I sort of had that, the concept of what if I create a platform where good content can be there every single day, somewhere salespeople can log into, check out, and there's something that's funny, something that's motivating, maybe a you know, a, a blog that's got some tips or knowledge, just something for salespeople. And yeah, you know, sat on my sofa, came up with the name, The Daily Sales, downloaded a, a logo designer app on my phone and designed the logo, the same logo that has, you know, existed since the start, set up the website, set up all the social yeah. channels. Was you, is that, is that just, that's just basic aerial font or something, right? Like you didn't go create some fancy font, right? No, 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 it's nothing, nothing too crazy. So and you, you've got like half a million views now every 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 day as, how, yeah how, it's how, how big, how big five thousand followers growing by ten thousand new followers every month and wow. i mean last year the content made 148 million impressions between january and december wow. Jesus. Just, just by being just by just by being sarcastic i blew it, I blew yeah, you, it. Missed, my, you, missed, you missed your calling Dude, that's like my existence is to be the most sarcastic guy in the room. I just can't stand. <laughs> so, yeah, it was too new and young a technology for you. That's oh, thank it. you, Scott. Yeah, I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the reason it grew so far is just because it was it's just entertainment. It's it's fantastic. So, so how did that? How and when did that go from fun and interesting hobby? Let me see what people will do. To holy cow, someone's gonna pay me to do something around this, right? Like, how, where did that, where did those two things merge for you? Yeah, it was, it was literally after the first year. So the first year, um, it grew to 100,000 followers. And during that entire year, 
I refused to look at it as a business because I knew that I could never charge the user. No one's going to pay for this sort of content. It's what we get for free, you know, on social media anyway. And, you know, for me, it was just fun. It was me sharing things that I found entertaining or interesting, whatever it may be. But when it grew to 100,000, I sort of realized, okay, here's a big audience of salespeople for companies that are trying to sell to salespeople. Actually, there's some value there. And, but, I mean, I've got to admit, it was one of the most difficult learning experiences um, of my career because I've never sold advertising. I've never sold to, to marketing departments. It was a whole new kind of thing to, to kind of learn and appreciate. Um, but yeah, so year one, full on hobby. Year two was, okay, this could be a business. How do I do that? And then it was sort of towards you, the end of year two that, yeah, make yeah. it happen. How do you, how do you monetize that? Yeah, that, that's, that, that had to be, that had to be some of the thought process, right? Like, yeah, exactly. I've, I've, got, I've got size, I've got size, I've got scale, I've got eyeballs. Like, how do I make money off of these things, right? There's no guide, there's no sort of set, yeah, yeah. this is what you should charge, this is what you should offer. It was yeah. all a lot of trial and error to get to the point of, okay, what can I offer that's going to, you know, make the partners, these companies happy, but equally, can't over advertise to the audience or otherwise they're going to drop on engagement, you know, then yeah. all of the bases are going to, so it's just finding that right sort of mix and you seem to have got to a pretty good place. I'm writing it down. I just followed well, the different sales on Twitter. Yeah. So explain explain to people, it feels like there's sort of two parts to Daniel, right? There's there's the daily sales, and then there's your sales training business, right? So just so people have some more context, right? Um, sales train, what kind of training do you do? I'm a sales trainer, right? I don't I don't Yeah, what's your what's your who's your ideal customer, Daniel? Yeah, so yeah, you're right. I mean, there's essentially three parts of, of what I do. There's the daily sales, there's, there's kind of the business side, then I'm the speaker, and then the, the sort of the, the trainer. Um, I tend to focus very much on social selling and LinkedIn. That's where I have the most kind of experience, the most to offer um, from an understanding of as a salesperson. There aren't many salespeople that, you know, kind of understand LinkedIn. A lot of it's marketing based, which great marketing platform, but it's a good sales platform. So that's where I focus, I do the odd bit of sales training here and there, but I, I the majority, 90% of what I do is, is around social selling and, um, and but what does that mean? Social selling, right? Like that's too buzzwordy. Is it LinkedIn specific? <laughs> is it you, you know, LinkedIn, Instagram, you build out cadences and sequences in, in outreach and sales loft. Like, what does it mean? Yeah. So for me, it's LinkedIn heavy. I touch on Instagram, Facebook and, and Twitter, but my ideal customer, the industry I'm kind of most knowledgeable around is, is B2B. So in B2B, LinkedIn is, is, is king. The other platforms have some potential. We have to be so careful with them. You know, Facebook and Instagram are heavily personal based. So you've got to be careful. There'll be a lot of decision makers in the B2B space that don't want to connect with you or talk to you on those platforms. They're personal. You have to kind of respect that. But some do. So it's kind of understanding that and appreciating that yeah so what if, if i'm if i'm your customer right and i want to hire daniel to help me with my linkedin team what's daniel going to teach me because and the reason i'm asking is i don't want them to think that you're coming in to teach them how to create memes which you could yeah. right like I, I want to make sure they understand the real value beyond just that piece yeah yeah uh, honestly the memes don't play a part in it you know memes are great and they're good for pages like the daily sales but for a b2b salesperson you know you might want to share one or two of those a year uh, if it's industry relevant and it suits your audience but beyond that that's a very separate uh, a separate part so what, what i teach um is how to generate inbound and outbound sales through linkedin so that you go through everything from your linkedin profile from your personal brand how to use all the search functions 
obviously how to send effective messages, which was what kind of inspired me to write uh, the book, The Million Pound LinkedIn Message, um, how to create good content, and just how to turn everything social into sales. I'm a hunter salesperson, and biggest gap I see is salespeople look at LinkedIn and they think, right, I'm going to share a blog and then I'm going to wait for sales to come to me. And as a hunter salesperson, you're missing out on so many opportunities. You can start conversations, no different to picking up the phone. And that's essentially what I uh, teach. Gotcha, gotcha. How can we be helpful, helpful to you, Daniel? Is there anything that uh, you, know, you need that Richard and I might be able to help out with? One thing I would love to, to learn from you guys, and I know this is kind of um, kind of new to you too, is is podcast. I, I would love to start a podcast, something I've wanted to do for a couple of years now, um, yeah. and I'm really keen to sort of do one around you know social selling and just try and provide value. But again, it's a new area for me, so it'd be great to kind of you know learn from you guys what you've experienced setting this up. You want to go first, Richard, or me? Yeah, so I'll I'll take this one and I'll I'll take full credit because Scott left take credit for everything else. So uh, now the the first piece of advice, and I've heard it from multiple people, is don't worry about it, right? If you want to record a podcast, just go record one, right? Like go record like we Scott and I did our first four, just the two of us on Zoom. Zoom records it. I then had to go figure out sort of the back end because you know as much as Scott likes to give me grief about technology. Um, it's not Scotch thing. You can, you can hear the dogs going. I've got two puppies at the moment that are, um, yeah, a bit yeah. playful. So apologies. That's all right. We, we're all in that boat. Um, so I'd say just start recording. We don't even edit. Like we're, we are very scrappy. Like we came in and we talked with you and we said, Hey, here's what we're going to do. And we're going to hit the record button and then we'll take the record stop button. We don't go in and edit. We don't go in and drop fancy stuff. We just want to put good content out and hopefully that's what people will like. And if it works, People will like it and they'll come back for more. And if they don't, they won't. But then I, we've also got this content that we could turn around in SEO. So don't over-engineer this thing, right? Like, do not think, oh, I need this and I need a fancy background. Like, you know, like this is, I will show you. Like, I, we're literally remodeling the house. And I can tell you for a fact that I'm literally in my son's bedroom today, right? Like, that's, and, and that's that's a step up because usually I'm in the freaking garage. Garage, yeah. So um, don't overthink this stuff from what we're trying to do. Now, look, you also have the daily sales, which is a brand and an image that's very different than what Scott and I are trying to accomplish. So if you do need to edit, then go do that, but don't think that's what you need to do. Um, first thing is just starting to have content, starting to put stuff out. I think you've already got the voice. People would love to hear from you and listen to you. Um, when Scott and I talked about doing this, I was, I was ready to start my own. I'd, I'd sort of done my first webinar on my own. Um, and I talked to Scott and I said, Hey man, I think we're stronger together than we are apart. We were sitting at, at dinner at his house and he's like, yeah. And I said, well, what if we do this? And then I gave him this idea of let's do Netflix style where we record a bunch and we drop all these episodes and Scott almost jumped out of his chair. He was yeah. like, put the microphone on right now. Let's yeah. go. Like he was like so excited. Um, and that's sort of, that's become our thing. Like that's, you know, I don't know if, we don't know if other people are doing it. We've heard they sort of do, but that's it. We just sort of came up with some ideas and went with it. And then we said, well, who do we want on? And Scott's been fabulous at booking all this stuff, reached out to you and about 60 other people. Um, you know, the, the most interesting thing, Daniel, is that if you ask someone to come on, if you decide you want that, you'll probably get a 90% yes acceptance rate. Like we did. We, that shocked yeah. us. We were like, wow, everybody wants to do this. They love it, even though we haven't put one out yet. Yeah. Um, so that, so those are the things is one, do it, 
don't over engineer it. Do a couple by yourself if you want. If you want to do it with a partner, do it with a partner. Right? That doubles your reach, although you've got good reach already. Um, and and then just go for it, man. And ask people to come on that you think are interesting to come on with. So, Scott, I don't know what what else would you suggest. Um, I, let me have a little bit of a different take. I I think it would be. I think it's important to know why you would want to start a podcast. You know. It seems like everyone has a podcast. That's what, that's, what, that's what it feels like at this point in time. So my hesitation or reluctance was like, why, why me? Why us? Like, what's the, what's the purpose of it? And then, you know, I, I kind of dug into that and, and, and realized, well, it's expanding our audience, right? Expand your audience. It's a form, a long tail form of prospecting. Right. So these are people who might learn about us, about what we do, learn about Richard's training and and consulting business, learn about my advisory and consulting business. You know, Serpent Sales is also an event that we're trying to grow. Right. We've put together multiple events now, uh, you know, trying to increase the exposure there for uh, attendee ticket sales, for, you know, sponsorship revenue, all that kind of stuff. and, and so I, I just sort of started to see it through a lens of, okay, this is a tool to increase our reach, right? And who do I want to talk to? Well, I want to talk to all these other people out there that I find super interesting, that I get value from their content. Um, and, and, I, and I want to swap stories and I and ideas and share learnings you know with those people and I don't want it to be all formal and all fancy right Richard's in his garage half the time I'm in my office bare bones right like just chatting off the cuff we've we've ruffled a couple people's feathers who are like very meticulous and love to be super prepared right and they're like what are are we going to talk about it's like dude I got like two or three ideas the rest of it's just gonna be a conversation like I want to just shoot from the hip right and so, and so I think, try to understand, understand why. And your reasons might be completely different than some of the reasons that I, you know, just mentioned that, that made it kind of important and valuable, um, you know, for me. But understand why. I, I would, it's a lot of time, man, you know, so I wouldn't just do it just to do it, mm-hmm. right? I would do it because you have a purpose, right? And whatever that purpose is, as long as it's important to you, then it becomes worth doing. But it's, it's, a, it's an investment. Richard will tell you. You know, it's an investment in terms of the time committed to. Absolutely. I'll give you the one piece of advice that I got that made me decide to do it. And, uh, and, it, and I give a lot of business credit to Scott, but a, a lot of it really goes back to John Barrows. You know, he's the one who convinced me when I was thinking about being, he's like, Richard, you can do this. You got to go for it. And he sort of explained why based on how things were happening for me. And he was right. And I called John and I said, you know, I'm thinking about doing a podcast. You know, I don't, I don't want to step on your toes, obviously, but like, what do you think? It's like, like, you know, who am I to have a podcast? Right. He goes, it's like, dude, you don't understand. Like the cool thing about what we do is because we help people and we give so much value, they want to hear from us. And it's just another way for them to hear from us. And that's not in a cocky way that John was not saying that is I got something important to say. It's that the audience wants to keep learning. And if you've got something to say, the audience will find you if it's quality. Right. And that was, again, some of the best advice that kind of made me go, okay, I can do this. Right. Cause I was sort of like 
having that imposter syndrome, right? Like, what, what, what am I going to say, right? Um, that, that was my last piece of advice. So. Really good advice. I really like your sort of relaxed approach to it because it's kind of the way I like to create content as well. So I think that's a really good insight into, into kind of how this has all come about and actually quite in, you know, confidence building for me to kind of think actually it's not as complicated because that's what you kind of do. You look at it and think, oh God, I need to do all these things. And yeah. actually, you know what, just put a camera on. If you, look, if you've got a team that can go do that and do this editing and you like that, go for it that's just not who Scott and I are at the moment, you know, yeah. uh, maybe one day, but you know, I'm, I'm still sitting here trying to take these videos and we've got one guy who's been so kind to us, Travis, who's helping in the back end. Uh, shout out to Travis. I'm like, dude, as we put these videos up on YouTube, like how do we get that subscribe button put on there? Like, you know, so he's like doing that kind of stuff for us. And it's like yeah. just stuff that other people are like, Oh my God, Richard, did you really just ask how to put a subscribe button on there? Like, you know, okay. And he doesn't even ask me because I'm utterly useless at that yeah. stuff. <laughs> so, so, you know, make it as fancy as you want or as least fancy as you want and, and enjoy it. I think, I also think given your background of just sort of creating these memes off the cuff and figuring it out, you're kind of wired to figure it out. So I would, and I would love to, like, I'd be your first subscriber. I would love to hear uh, the Daniel Disney, the daily sales, right. Um, the stuff, you know, so that would be fantastic. So I would gladly subscribe, yeah. support it. Tweet it out. Be a guest if you want. Count us in. Count us in. Yeah. I appreciate that. You're giving me even more confidence now. I'm going to go away and uh, start Good. putting this together. I appreciate that, guys. And then, Scott, your point as well about why do it is a really important piece. I think, you know, there has to be a, a kind of purpose. And, and for me, it's just to try and help salespeople. And that's, you know, what drives me to uh, and do all of this. Um, yeah, yeah. Hey, Richard, you know, podcasting is just another place that there are people. That's the preference that they like to consume content. So, no, My last last question, because then I know we need to wrap it up. Do you remember what your first meme was for the daily sales? Even before you had the name, what was it? What did it say? I do, and I'm I'm going to get it sort of printed nicely because it is what started all of this. Um, right. and I have it on the wall. Not that you probably better see it from the camera, but it was the um the scene from Dumb and Dumber where um. Yeah. Lloyd asks Mary, um, you know, obviously she, you know, he, he wants to have something with her and she says, oh, not if you were the last person on earth. And he sort of pauses and smiles and says, so you're telling me there's a chance. And the meme in, in sales world was when um, a prospect tells you to call them back in six or 12 months. And right. There's always a few salespeople that are like, yes, there's a chance. Whereas everyone else is like, yeah, you're just being yeah. popped off there. So that was oh, the although, you know what? Do you teach people to say that? Because I think if I said that to a VP of sales or something, they'd probably get it enough and they, they, might, they might actually remember me. <laughs> like, that's hilarious. Hey, thanks for the time, Daniel. Appreciate it, man. Awesome, thanks Daniel. For, Thank you so much. Knowledge on everybody. No, I appreciate you guys having me. This has been absolutely awesome. And um, yeah, fantastic podcast. Thank you. All right. All right. See ya.